that the, those four or five minutes that we spend at the end of sitting together where whoever mentions people in their mind and in their heart who they're thinking about, I always think it's probably the most important five minutes of the whole morning. First of all, for whatever uh, benefit our, our wishes have in the world, uh, saying out loud what, what touches our heart and what we're concerned about in the company of, uh, in the company of friends who we know, whether we know them or not, we can count on to feel as we do what a thing it is to be a human being in a world with all these different things that face them. And to feel comforted by the presence of others. I find it comforting to be able to say what's on my mind and what, what concerns me. And feel like it's held in other people's good intentions. And every once in a while there's a, you know, something, you know, there, there's a whole range of things that happen to people. And in the middle of, and many of them often because they concern us, are dire things, difficult things. And then all of a sudden there's a baby girl born this morning. And she's got her whole life sticking out in front of her. And I'm sure it's 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 uh, it's true for you as it is for me that in that moment it connects me not only to that baby girl who I don't know her mother or it connects me to my wish that the world will continue to be an okay place for people to be for the length of that little girl's lifetime that uh, in fact it'll get better than where how it is that uh, uh, that conflict will stop between peoples, between nations, that will actually clean up the atmosphere and clean up this water and make this really a hospitable, inhabitable planet. You know, it's not so far away from my, my sense of what we do here when we practice. Um, sometimes people ask, uh, this doesn't look like a a practice sitting here quietly trying to be uh, habituate our minds to peace doesn't look like it's out in the world making a difference and the space between what I do here internally and out in the world making a difference seems so small to me that when I sit here and I'm breathing and I feel the pleasure of the next breath and the next breath so far my lungs are still working and so far, the biosphere is green enough for this next breath to be able to go in and out. And I think to myself, it's as near as the next breath and the pleasure of knowing I could just now take this breath that makes me appreciative of my body, appreciative of the care that I take of it, and appreciative of the care that everybody takes of the world so that it's still green enough for me to breathe and for everyone else to breathe. And so I think to myself, I, you know, how does this have to do with social activism? There isn't a breath that I enjoy that isn't connected to the fact that I recycle and that I want other people to recycle. And when I leave my house early in the morning and I see my neighbors, because I live up a long hill, trundling down their recycle all the way down to the street because today's a pickup day and tomorrow they'll trundle them back up the long hill back to their houses, I feel good about it.
I think it's not really possible to make uh, activism uh, in the world separate from what happens internally from us. As a matter of fact, I think it's dependent on it. Uh, if I think about what I'm doing internally as uh, cultivating uh, goodwill and benevolence and spacious and spaciousness and tolerance, because otherwise I could easily slip into being mad at whoever polluted the planet or whoever isn't recycling or whoever is, uh, in my view, creating conflict. And getting mad isn't going to make it any better. But uh, getting active is going to make it better. Getting active with a good heart. I think about um, changing the minds of the world through uh, spreading the word that peace is possible for all of us. Internally, in our own minds and hearts and bodies and lives, in our families, in our communities, really internationally, interculturally, between communities. I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about uh, this practice as the practice of kindness. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, partly because I, I this week heard two extraordinary stories that I want to tell you. So what I want to frame it as, as, uh, uh, as Dharma is... Um, having heard the Dalai Lama say frequently when people say, what kind of a religion is Buddhism? What is your religion? He says, my religion is kindness. Um, I would actually, this is hubris, correcting the grammar of the Dalai Lama, but I would say my religion is the cultivation of kindness. My religion is the cultivation of a clear mind on behalf of kindness. And I would also add to it that I think that that's true of every enduring religious tradition that I know. Fundamentally, is teaching the Dharma, the truth, that the mind that's content is kind, the mind that's content is naturally loving, that the, uh, the point or the goal of religious practice or spiritual practice or sacred practice is to arrive at that place of uh, where human beings realize that the only really way to live happily together, the only way to be happy, is to create uh, minds that are congenial and friendly and cooperative and sharing. I think we're actually strung that way. So these are the stories I want to tell you because I think they're, they're amazing. One, um, I, I read in a book I'm reading this week, the story, this is a story. On January 2nd, 2007, uh, at the uh, 137th Street stop of the uh, Broadway line in uh, New York, um, a man uh, had a, a 20-year-old young student had a, a, a seizure, was convulsing. Several men and a woman rushed over to to support him, and because he was having the seizure and convulsing, he staggered out of their hands and fell backwards into the tracks. Uh, there on a subway stop, fell backwards into the tracks. One of those men, Wesley Autry, 50 years old, a construction worker, 
seeing the lights of the number one train rushing down through the tunnel, threw himself into the tracks, pushed this man down between the tracks, lay himself down on top of this person, and the conductor of the train saw him, put his foot on the brake, couldn't stop the train. Five cars went over the two of them, and when they screeched to a halt and the people on the, on the platform were all shouting and hollering, Wesley Autry shouted out, we're okay, please take care of my two daughters that are on the platform. He had a four-year-old and a six-year-old that he was waiting for the train with. So they did. They also called the proper people who turned off the power and separated the trains. And here these two men emerged, a little bit bruised up, but fine. And he was on the news in New York for several days as a, an extraordinary <laughs> act of kindness. And he said, in, as he properly should have been, interviewed by everybody, and he said, you know, I didn't think it was heroic. I didn't, you know, I didn't think anything about it. So as a matter of fact, I didn't think. I just did it. And the other people that he that were interviewed around that, the people on the subway station, they admired it tremendously, the people who had tried to keep this man from falling. But everybody said, I wish I could have done what he did. But I, you know, I wanted to help this person, but I couldn't do it. And when I, I read that story this week, and I thought to myself, I don't think we could all do it. I think that Wesley Autry had a, a certain kind of a extraordinary nervous system, and he didn't think, he just did it. And I applaud him tremendously, because I thought to myself, oh, I don't think I could have done that. But I think I would have wanted to do it, and I think everybody would have wanted to do it. When you heard that story, didn't you think, wow, I wish I would have wanted you know, I w I'm glad that that happened that way. When I told you about it, he fell in the tracks. Didn't you feel terrified? Didn't you want him to be okay? When I think about cultivating kindness, I don't think that we have to cultivate kindness. We don't have to take kindness lessons. We have to take clearing the mind lessons. I think that fundamentally, we all reach out mentally or actually physically, in the case of this man, on behalf of other people, when we're not confused, and certainly in that moment, the attention is focused. You see what happened? That's one thing. The only thing that could happen is I can jump in and hold him down. So here's another story. That one was really the super story. Here's another story. This is a story I read this week. Um, uh, it was written, uh, the account, this account is called Wandering Around in the Albuquerque Airport. And it was written by Naomi Shihab Nye, who um, probably many of you know. She's a Palestinian-American poet, and she, uh, she wrote a poem called On Kindness, which many people have heard many times, and I've read here many times. And in the end, it's only kindness that gets us going, kindness that gets us out of bed in the morning to tie our shoes and go out and buy bread and post letters, something that's close to it. Anyway, this is not a poem. It's a story she tells of having recently been in the Albuquerque airport and having her uh, flight, uh, hearing that her flight is uh, detained for four hours. It's going to be four hours late, the flight. And then they have an announcement on the, on the public address system that says, is there anyone in the airport who speaks Arabic? So 
Shihabnai is a Palestinian-American, but she says in her account that her Arabic is not exactly up to speed, but she grew up in an Arabic-speaking household. Probably many of us have a second language that we could, in a pinch, pull up if we needed to. So since she speaks Arabic, she went to the gate, and it turned out that this was the gate, very gate of her flight. And uh, there was a woman on the floor, crying, collapsed, older woman, uh, who had heard the, uh, the announcement that the flight was going to be delayed four hours and had, or had gotten that information from someone and had misunderstood and thought that the flight was not going to go altogether. It was tremendously important that she go because she had been scheduled, I think they were going to El Paso and there was some very important uh, medical procedure that she was having the next day and she had to go. So here in this account, she said, so I talked to her in my best Arabic that I could pull together, and I finally conveyed to her what was happening. So she managed to calm down, and she said, then I said to her, who is picking you up in El Paso? And she said, well, my, uh, my, uh, my brother is going to be there. So they phoned the brother on the cell phone, and... Uh, uh, the brother, uh, and, and she explained to him in English, and then he explained, it was my son, and then the son explained to her in good Arabic, more fluent Arabic, what was happening. Uh, and then they called her other son, and he, they spoke for a while. And then she said, then I called a few, uh, uh, Palestinian, another Palestinian poet that I knew. So I, I talked to them, and then he talked to her in Arabic for a while. In the meantime, everybody's gathering around. In the meantime, this uh, Palestinian woman speaking Arabic unwraps a, a package of homemade cookies uh, that she's made to bring to her family when she gets there. And they start passing the cookies around the airport. And at that point, uh, United Airlines, um, in order to take care of their passengers who are inconvenienced, inconvenienced by the delay, start to pass out apple juice and soda. So all of a sudden, everybody's gathering around and they're having a sort of an impromptu party in the Albuquerque airport. Uh, I want to read you the end of this story because I've, I've done a good enough job telling you what the story's about. But the end of it is too good not to say. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, non-alcoholic, and two little girls for our, uh, the two little girls for our flight, one African-American, one Mexican-American, ran around serving us all apple juice and lemonade, and they were covered with powdered sugar from the cookies. <laughs> I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, has seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So, and I, first of all, I love the story. And second of all, I loved it that the, that the precipitating moment that 
that sends out this whole chain of more and more people becoming involved in not only caring from each other, for each other, but soothing their own frayed nerves, happens from a moment of kindness. Who in this airport speaks Arabic? And then you think, oh, I speak Arabic. It's a, it's a more sedate version of who on this train station has the wherewithal to leap in and take care of this person. My friend Jonathan had just moved to New York from San Francisco uh, in uh, 2000, 2001, actually. And uh, so he was newly there and uh, not yet fully employed when the uh, World Trade Center event happened. And uh, because he's clergy, he's a rabbi, he immediately presented himself to the authorities around to uh, donate his time to do whatever he could in terms of clergy support. And he said that, uh, they directed him to, uh, this is several days later, to a great big um, harbor building somewhat, somewhat a little bit apart from the ground zero, but a, a big um, terminal building, a harbor building on the pier that had been taken over by a consortium of social service agencies. So for anyone who had any kind of a need that was um, uh, somehow related to that event, if you needed a death certificate for a relative, if you needed yet to report someone missing, if you needed to know how to sign up for social security benefits or unemployment benefits, or you needed to know anything about anything connected to that, they had all the agencies, the social agencies that deal with all those things in that big building. And Jonathan said what they did was with clergy, they, that a lot of clergy had volunteered, they gave them all green vests, so they all put on green vests, so you could tell who they were. And when someone came and were, entered into the place, they would say, um, whatever the person said, uh, you know, I need, they'd say, find a person in a green vest, and they'll take you to that place. And they, so they were skilled in knowing who needed what, what depending on what your problem was. So Jonathan said, here he was, and so they didn't distinguish between this kind of clergy and that kind of clergy and the other kind of clergy. Everyone had a green vest. And, uh, and because they were clergy, they could ask, where do I get Social Security benefits? Where do I get this? Where do I get that? And he said, every once in a while, someone said, would you pray with me? So also, you're not you're non-denominational clergy at that point, because who cannot sit down with somebody and say, what would you like to say? Who are you missing? What's happening with you? You know, there's a, there, there are kind things to say that are really trans-denominational. They don't have to be with one or another. So when he told me about this uh, some days later, and I was visualizing what was going on, and I was visualizing this great big facility with people in green vests circulating around, helping people to get the help that they need. And I thought, now that would be something. Suppose in the world, everybody who felt like they wanted to help would put on a green vest, and then we would just go about our business, but we would all be suited up. As I say that, I realize that I think the Girl Scouts had green vests. But, you know, the, everybody puts on a green vest and goes about their day. It's not a fashion statement, I guess, but goes about their day. So in public places, if somebody is confused or needs help or needs something, they find a green vest person. This means I am making myself available to you. 
And it's, it's such a pleasant thing to think about. Don't you think it's a pleasant thing to think about? Because who here wouldn't put on a green vest? Or would put on a green vest? I have to do that. Who here would put on a green vest? We all, not only because we know it would do good for other people to be helpful, it does good to us to be helpful. That in the middle of helping, helping is its own consolation. Uh, many years ago, um, the man who was my next-door neighbor at the time um, and himself a physician, died of a protracted cancer. And he died at home. And uh, when I visited him near the end of his life, he, uh, had, he was lying in his bed and he had an array of medic medications on the table next to him. And he was in a lot of pain. And he said, you know, all this is morphine and I get to... Uh, I get to administer my own morphine because I'm a physician, so they give it to me. I can give myself the morphine whenever I want. And he said, every once in a while, when the pain is terrible, I think to myself, you know, I could finish this all right now. I could just be done. He said, and I get ready to think, I'm thinking about it. And he said, as I'm thinking about it, I think about my nephew in Atlanta who's starting a business, and I have some ideas for him about how to make this business work that he'll need to do and that he should have in mind. So first I have to call the nephew in Atlanta. And um, actually my, my other sister's uh, daughter in uh, Los Angeles is about to get married. And you know, I have some thoughts about what would be a good thing for a married couple to know when they're about to get married. So then I think about doing that. So every time I get ready to do it, I think, well, there's something else I could do. And there's something else I could do. And the reason that I love to tell that story about Jesse is I think to myself that Jesse ultimately died, but he was alive until he died. You know, There wasn't a time when he wasn't alive. Every time he's picking up a, call, a phone to call the nephew or call the niece or call this one or call the other one, he's alive. He's a potent, active person in the world, and he's not fe feeling dead. He has something yet to do. There's some vivifying force in him. And I think the vivifying force is to take care of somebody else. You probably all know that the version of that story that shows up often in, in literature about the experience in concentration camps, the Holocaust experience, where somebody, some of the survivors later telling the stories of the incredible, incredible horrors that they endured, and people asking them, how did you manage to survive? And often hearing the story back, I often thought I wouldn't, and I often thought it would be just as well if I didn't. And then somebody too weak to go to the water bucket to get water would need water, and I could bring it to them. And somebody who needed to get carried out to the latrine, I could carry them out. Then there was always another job to do. I think we stay alive by taking care of each other, and I think it's the cause of happiness. Even when you say that, it's a very, that's a very special happiness. Often we use the word happiness to mean pleased. Well, in a sense, you're pleased when you can help someone. Or but we use it in a sense that, sound, that sounds like joy. I was so happy and I was so joyous. And those are definitely situations in which no one is joyous but happy in the sense of feeling useful and connected and alive and doing something 
that assuages the pain or the discomfort of other people. And when I think about that, I think it's marvelous to be a human being. I don't know if other animals do that. Maybe they do. You know, you can't, you can't know for sure that they don't. Uh, but that human beings are strung to want to take care of each other. So then that comes around again to what are we doing here at Spirit Rock? Um, what does the Dalai Lama mean when he says my religion is kindness? And what do I mean when I say I'd like to change that to my religion is the cultivation of kindness? And I think that's everybody's religion, by the way. Uh, that when my minds are not confused, when we're not uh, preoccupied with our own pain, and here was Jesse who had pain, but not preoccupied, not too preoccupied to reach out. When we can somehow keep our attention on the world around us, there's something there that pulls us to stay connected to it. I don't, this might sound, actually, it just comes to mind now, so I'm going to say it. While we were sitting, I was more or less, I was trying to be present. I was as present as I could be. Every once in a while, my mind would think about this or that, or what did I want to teach today, and get a little bit caught up in that. And then I'd be sitting again. And then at one point, I was sitting, and my mind was a little bit cloudy. Maybe I was sleepy a little bit. And then one of our turkeys made a sound. Did you realize that? I thought, that is so great. You know, the tur the because the, the turkeys make that ridiculous sound, and, uh, and they, they evoke... The, their image, you know, comes to mind, the turkey, and they're so ridiculous looking, you know, and, uh, and uh, so and I, I, every time I look at them, I think to myself, what was God thinking? You know, they, they look like they're put together with spare parts because they're not, they're not balanced very well. They, you know, they, they waddle in that funny way. But I realized all of a sudden I was sitting with whatever, an unclear mind, and here comes the turkeys, gobble, 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 and I wake up, and I feel waked up and happy. There are, you know, there are those moments where when suddenly the attention wakes up and the mind is happy over something like a turkey or the fact that it's not raining or that it's sunny or that I'm here or that you're here or any other thing that's happening. Here was a, uh, a line from, this is the book, by the way, that I read the story about Wesley Autry. It's called All Things Shining. Uh, reading the Western classics to find meaning in a secular age. So we're talking about uh, kindness in and out of uh, a, a, a spiritual context. And uh, the, this particular author at this point is talking about it's a very comp it's a more complex world that we live in now with um, the amount of stimuli coming into everybody's life every day is so much more. I think about the fact that uh, when my grandfather came to the United States in 1908 and he left his family in Poland, he knew that he most likely would not see any of them ever again. I mean, if you could save up and come to the United States, he didn't go back and forth. He didn't get on a plane and go, nor did you Skype or do any of those things that we now do. In fact, if he needed to write a letter to his family, uh, he, because he was illiterate and couldn't write, he needed to find a scribe to write the letter, 
and then send the letter and post it. And it went by boat, so it took weeks to get there. By the time it came to his parents' town, they'd have to find another scribe to read it to them and then write something back. So that the news, for instance, of his parents' death came to him months after it had happened. So uh, not to say that he wasn't sad to hear about those things, but it had less, I think, of the jarring impact of the phone rings and and the phone rings or you turn on the TV and there are those planes hitting the World Trade Center and there's this happening and there's that happening. We have so many things happening that are startling and frightening and overwhelming that if I choose to watch the TV, I not only see what the newscaster is talking about, but I have this running line underneath to see a few more things at the same time. And I'm convinced that they're either, f the, 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 the broadcasting people are either speeding up the images or my mind is actually showing its age because it, it's got all these graphics there, ding, 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 ding. And you know, I'm a pretty good reader and I'm fluent reading, but I, I realize I, it's hard to keep up with. And it's a, it's a tremendous amount of, of incoming stimuli. We're gonna come back to paying attention. I heard yesterday about a research project where people are um, talking again about the the effect of, of uh, all the stimuli, the the, uh, the the tweets and the um, why the, why, 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 the texts, the texts and the tweets. Uh, <laughs> I took my two grand older granddaughters to dinner the other night. And I'm so happy that they want to go out with their grandmother. I mean, that's a big deal. We do it frequently. So I never say anything to them, any that might be the least bit negative. But I, I realize I'm sitting and having dinner with them, and they're texting away and checking. And they're halfway here and halfway here and halfway here and halfway here. And when they're here, all of a sudden you hear ding, someone just got a text. So they're doing two things. They're talking to me, and they're having a relationship with someone over here. I don't say anything about it, but, uh, you know, undoubtedly they turn them off in school, so uh, I think they turn them off in school. Um, but someone did a is doing some research studies on um, uh, the effect on, on, on the infant of nursing mothers who are texting at the same time, and they can actually measure that there's a difference, you know. Uh, first of all, because when you're texting, you get all kinds of, you're reading your email, you have all kinds of alarming things that you see, or if you run out of email, you could always watch the news or something. <laughs> uh, and that a piece of startling input translates into what the baby feels. Not, not only that, but I was thinking about the fact that years ago, people did research before the texting and the tweeting on the uh, impact on the infant if the mother is talking to other people. You know, that, uh, uh, that the optimum, apparently, way to nourish your child is you not only feed it milk, but you look at it and you talk to it and you feel its body against you with a bottle, with your own body, it doesn't, I, I don't actually think it matters too much, but you're holding it, you're looking at it, and food is going in, and your eyes are going in, and your look is going in. I read the other day in one of these reports of uh, infant uh, learning, infant uh, neurology building, that uh, 
this particular experiment begins by saying, with an infant 43 seconds old, 43 seconds old, that just came out, you know, that no one's wiped it up yet or done anything. So I figure it must have, the researcher in this case must be the father, because the mother is probably not doing this research at this moment. But the father I could see could be holding a 43 second, a researcher would be keyed that way, holding an infant, looking at this girl, 43 seconds old, and he sticks out his tongue and wags it. And the baby sticks out her tongue and wags. Is that amazing? Isn't that amazing? They are looking at you from the beginning and they get all these signals back. I thought that was marvelous. I can look and stick out his little tongue and move it. Uh, imagine this person doing the research in the middle. <laughs> But uh, where do you find, you know, the, the, the research subjects are not so easy to come by for that, so you have to take it when you get it. So, um, but you know, to be able to talk to it, hold it, look at it, the, the, uh, the evidence over years now of uh, child psychology research is uh, how much people feel bonded to a caregiving person. Could be a father as well as a mother could be a bottle as well as a breast, but how much you feel bonded to this person who's a source of your nourishment that that person at that moment really sets up your ability to be comfortable in a world of other people and to know how to relate to them and to be able to relate to them and to feel accompanied in the world. I think it's not just for the other person, it's for us. The ability to feel accompanied in the world I'm just flashing back on Naomi Shihab Nye's uh, um, Albuquerque Airport. Um, I had a moment of realization that my mother, uh, much to the distress of my father, who was more reticent and uh, proper, would get on a subway train. The three of us would get on the subway, and she would immediately start talking to the people next to her. It was her way. My father was very distressed by that, it wasn't. Uh, but I'm glad she did, just in this moment, when I remember that she had Nye and the cookies in Albuquerque. Everybody's on a journey, and everybody's a little stressed going somewhere. And it's much better to talk to people than to let them go just by themselves. Um, I was flying over the Rockies once, where we came over some, what the pilot then comes on later and says, uh, excuse me, folks, that was a mountain wave, and you can't see them coming. Uh, so you don't have a notice about it from the other part. It's just a suddenly strange uh, difference in, in air pressure. So the plane is going along and suddenly goes bump, 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 as if you're riding over a road that's, that's kind of a, a bumped up road. And by the time you get, you get frightened by it, it's practically over. Uh, but you certainly are startled by it. And the only time that that happened to me, and how come I know that that's what's a mountain wave because the pilot came on, is I looked up and I looked at the woman next to me, who I didn't know, and put out my hand and she held mine and I held hers. And we bumped our way through and then we finished and we let go because that's what you do. But that's actually what you feel like doing in that moment. You feel like reaching out. People I know have had surgery say, you know, that's a funny feeling in the moment that you're uh, 
I'm just going under an anesthesia. And most people say to me, I say to whoever's there, the attending medical personnel, would you hold my hand now? We are all needing someone to hold our hand through the difficult parts. And I would think that how I would make that fit with what we're doing here is we're making ourselves available to hold our own hands and hold other people's hands. That's what we're doing here. When we're not confused, it's a natural thing. What I opened this book about a little while ago is talking about living in this complicated world with so much, uh, so much terribleness to look at, so much pain, so much poverty, so much war, so much conflict. But he's talking about paying attention, really paying attention. The saving possibility for modern life. If you give yourself a choice, you can choose to look at differently at a situation. If you really learn how to pay attention, it will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful but sacred, on fire with the same force that made the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. I was thinking that, okay, what I really wanted to end by talking about this morning was about the difference between paying attention and mindfulness. You know, that uh, mindfulness has become such a um, mainstream word now. Uh, if you look in bookstores, Somebody said to me yesterday, they said, I'm so tired. You look in a bookstore, mindful parenting, mindful gardening, mindful skiing, mindful tennis, mindful this, mindful that. Everybody is mindful. It's become a co-opted word, that mindful. And um, I, think it's a, I think, first of all, anything that you do while you're paying attention, you do better. Mindful dancing, mindful skiing, you don't fall down. Um, mindful sex, I think, was out a while ago. But everything that you pay attention is better. But uh, I think it's not about the paying attention alone that is key to the mindfulness that we're practicing. It's paying attention with the intention to see what's deeply true. To see, in fact, that when we pay attention, that everybody is in the same boat. That we're all on a journey. We started it on a certain day, we'll end it on a certain day. It's like going on the same train or the same airplane. Well, you can't get off at an airplane on a stop, but on a train, people get on at different stops and they get off at other stops. And fundamentally, we're traveling this life road that has all kinds of bumps and obstacles and difficulties, and it's supposed to. I mean, that actually is the nature of life. When we grow up, we're supposed to, uh, conf I think Erickson called this, confronting um, uh, developmental hurdles, developmental uh, challenges. You're supposed to uh, have a little bit of an upset when you discover, once you can toddle on your own two feet, that you're not connected to your mother and by magic, and that you could accidentally walk around a corner and not see her for a minute. The, 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 uh, uh, the sound of a child who's just disappeared out of its mother's view, ah, all of a sudden, it's just not used to not having that connection has to get used to that, has to get used to dexterity and walking and riding a bike and going to school and learning algebra and dealing with puberty and dealing with sexuality and dealing with relationship and dealing with work. And there's always something to deal with. 
Um, an old woman I know said to me, uh, uh, sent me a card that said, please come and visit me. I've moved into an assisted living because uh, my, my legs are too frail. Now she was 95. She said, I really need to be somewhere where people can look after me. She said, so I'm, I'm happy that I'm here. I can still draw. I can still give classes here, but I'm having trouble getting used to my new situation. And everything about that story is particular to Beatrice in her situation, except the, the line, I'm having trouble getting used to our new situation, because that's everybody's line. We're always having trouble getting used to a new situation, getting used to arthritis, getting used to this is wrong, getting used to that is lost, getting used to that isn't going to happen anymore, getting used to this dream doesn't work. How really uh, the, the, the mind remarkably manages to say, whoops, I'm having trouble, and then equilibrates itself and goes on and says, okay, this is a new normal, that's what I'm doing now. How, I think what we're doing here is we are cultivating those habits of mind that keep uh, the spirit buoyant so that we say, well, okay, it's not like that anymore, it's like this. And then sometimes we, talk, we have nostalgia, we say, oh, when I could have skied down that hill, when I go and I watch skiers now, so oh, I'm so sorry I stopped. But I'm, you know, I have a moment of wistfulness. On the other hand, I could say I'm not sorry I stopped. I stopped before I broke anything, and it could be a serious thing if I fell down now. So it's good that I stopped. You know, that, that every story that has a negative valence, if I really look, can it can have the other side of it. Probably the most important part of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's teaching on cultivating a mind that's buoyant and resilient and uh, not self-preoccupied so that it can actually be available to be in relationship because that's what makes us happiest. Probably the most important path part of the Eightfold Path, right understanding, rise, wise intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness, probably the most important of them is wise effort. And it's the least talked about. Talk a lot about wise mindfulness, wise concentration, and, and the morality, which is very important. And uh, for a lot of years in my own practice, my teachers didn't mention it very much, that particular path part. And I didn't mention it very much when I began to teach. And recently I begin to think it's the pivotal part of the whole path because it actually gives the, um, well, here it is. Here's what the Buddha said was wise effort. It has four parts to it. Wise effort is the effort to notice um, uh, skillful mind states when they're present in the mind and delight in their being present and cultivate them more, consolidate them. So if I notice that my mind is filled with peace and benevolence and goodwill and tolerance, and say, wow, look at that, far out, that's great. I'll just cultivate these more and I'll keep it off to, you know, I'll think about the turkeys when I start to lose this. Or, uh. The second part is noticing the absence of skillful mind states. So it's a little trickier. But, you know, really you could say I'm walking along, you know, I'm going along and I say, boy, 
my mind is in a droopy way, a little bit dismayed and discouraged and telling myself sad stories about this or that. He said, you should notice when your mind is as absent those kinds of skillful, uh, uplifting mind states and cultivate them. So either you have them and you cultivate them, consolidate them, you don't have them and you cultivate them. So also the two other parts you can probably guess is you notice, one should notice the uh, presence in the mind of unskillful mind states, revenge, anger, jealousy, envy, lust, greed. You should notice them and put them out of your mind. It's so easy to say that. I love that, you know, <laughs> put them out of your mind. But actually, I love that it says that because it suggests that you could. It, they know that put them out of your mind. It's like if you had a teaspoon of something that you thought was syrup or ice cream or something good, and you were bringing it up to your mouth, and it said, actually, you see a little skull and crossbones, poison, you put it back down, you know. The Buddha said that anger is a poison in the veins. If you see yourself about to put in poison, say, wait a minute. Actually, that's the fourth one. If you notice the absence of, of unskillful, you keep them out. You don't put any in. If you notice the presence, you do something to put them out. And I think that the, the practices that we teach are the practices that allow them to dissipate. I think the idea, it's... it's it's very um, ennobling. Actually, the Buddha does say, just put it out of your mind. Sometimes it's hard to put something out of your mind, like a jealousy or a revenge. However much you want to, the effort of get out of here, a mind state, is complicating the mind state more because the mind is getting tighter and tighter. And it's also demoralizing. Look how hard I'm trying to get rid of this mind state and I'm can't do it, so I must be a very unskillful, unspiritual person. If I really were a spiritual person, I could put this down. But zip, I put it out one, one half of my mind, and it's right away back in the other half of my mind. I think that mindfulness is actually the key to all of those four, keep in, keep out, cultivate. I think it works this way, that when I am actually present for what's happening, not only how my body feels, but what's the terrain of my mind? What are the thoughts going through? What's the flavor of the thoughts? What's the flavor of my mind? We could do an experiment. Um, uh, da, 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 da. How do I want to do this? Do, do we have time to do this? Yes. Close your eyes for a moment and think to yourself, how's my mind? What's going on in my mind? Now take a long breath in and out, really a long breath, like your palate cleanse. Take a long breath in and blow your breath out. Take another breath in and out. 
and take another breath in and out. Think of an incident, an experience in your life where someone did something very kind for you. see if you can just see it in your mind, little play and acting, and see the people there. And feel how your mind feels while you're thinking that. Now think of another moment where you did something very kind for somebody else. See how your mind feels. And open your eyes. Can you have a partner? Everybody have like a partner. Take one partner. Okay, everybody got a partner? Little three minute exercise. Have a partner. Anybody need a partner? Put up your hand if you need a partner. Anybody needs a partner? Okay, ding dong. So, um, in the next uh, three minutes, person A will tell their two instances to person B, and person, and then in the next three minutes, person B will tell their two to person A. And I will be the bell ringer for the end of the three minutes. Uh, person A could be the person with the shorter hair.
Person B could tell. Well, person A could finish the sentence, and then person B could tell. Ready, set, go, person B. So one of the things that I'm enjoying is that uh, clearly kindness uh, is a topic that uh, wakes people up, and you have a lot to say about it. How do you feel now compared to six minutes ago? Energized. What else? Hmm? 
Yeah. Happy. I'm looking around. A lot of people smiling. Yeah. A lot of people smiling. But, um, huh? Excited. Excited. Grateful. Yeah. When the other person told you their story, could you? It, it's like it isn't as if it's unique to them. You feel their their pleasure about it. It makes you feel picked up, even if it wasn't a kindness that someone did you. Mm. Was it different if you thought about what someone did you or you did someone? No. What was the difference? Yeah. Different mental state when you did something for somebody else. I'm thinking about that. What's your name? Alice. Alice. Maybe it's because, I don't know, but maybe think about this with me. Uh, in a situation where we would have recognized a kindness, we were probably in some sort of a distress that somebody did the kindness. We were lost and someone showed us where to go or something. So maybe that was a, 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 a more, you had to, Recall a difficult time, whereas when you think of a kindness that you did somebody, you at that point had enough left over to do something for somebody, yeah. Well, it, it makes me think they've done studies where they'll give someone like $100 in one group. They say, spend the $100 on yourself, just have the nicest day you can think of. And the other one says, here's $100, you've got to spend it on others. Yeah. And then they, you know, then check in by various means. Yeah. On, what the level of happiness was, and the happy group was always the one that spent the, the happier group was the one that spent money on others. Yeah, yeah. everybody heard that, right? That uh, you know the uh, my friend Sharon Salzberg was coming back from Asia to I, I guess the West Coast at some point years and years ago, and someone gave her an envelope. It was a pretty fat envelope, and said, uh, "This is for you to give homeless people on the street when you when you're in San Francisco." And, a fat envelope, and she assumed they were dollar bills. And when she began to be walking around, she was working, working, walking around in Berkeley, I think. And when she took it out, they were twenty dollar bills. So there's like a moment of thought, oh, you know, this, uh, not I'll keep them, but twenty dollars, so much to give to everybody. But that's what the instruction was: give this out to the people that you meet on the street. So she went about, and she gave it out, and she said, pretty soon, it was like the Pied Piper. She had this huge run of people following her down the street. But she said, you know, you have a feeling you're giving away so much money to people you don't know. But she said, I kept thinking, it's not my money. You know, it's just, I was the conduit for this money. Someone said, share this around. It's like cookies, share this around. And if you think about it, we're not the owner of anything, actually. So whatever we've got, we could just say this is temporarily mine, even if we say this is my money, but it didn't used to be. It's currently in my position. And um, that feeling of being able to give, not, not any particular denomination, but being able to give in terms of any kind of uh, gift that you might give to somebody that's a tangible gift, or the kindness of noticing that somebody's lost and say, you know, can I help you with directions? Or that somebody doesn't speak English and you hear their language and you say, I can speak that. That every one of those is realizing I, can, I have something that somebody else can use, you know? And I'll share it with them and I'll give it to them. And it's the moment of connection and I think that our happiness depends on feeling connected. Otherwise we are lonely and isolated and it's a scary life, it's fragile, you don't know when it's going to end. And we're always worrying about when am I going to have my next state of happiness. Whereas the world is so full of people that could use some our attention all the time. We could be very happy. 
I was I was thinking the other day, and people I said this to somebody, and she didn't remember it. I said, well, maybe you have to be old. There was a poem by Robert Louis Stevenson in a children's book of verse that I had when I was a child. You know it, the line? Tell me the line. Oh, yeah. The world is so full of a number of things, I think we, I'm sure we should all be as happy as kings. That's it. And I thought, you know, I, I, I remember saying that, I remember there was a picture of a girl swinging on a swing. And, you know, it's a nice, it has a nice sound, that little verse. But I didn't think about it. But I think it's the ultimate mindfulness verse, that the world is so full of a number of things. I'm sure we should all be as happy as kings. What if we absolutely paid attention to everything? It becomes illuminated. And the thing is, it isn't the thing that's pleasurable. It's the moment of connection that's pleasurable. It's the wakened up mind that's pleasurable. And the responding to somebody else needs something is your mind just woke up and said, oh, that person needs something. Uh, the ultimate is that person just fell into the subway, but this person needs this, or this person needs that, or there's always somebody needing something that you could do, your attention, a smile. Um, it's a very uh, exciting thing to keep rediscovering that truth about human beings, because it's on that truth that people are fundamentally kind that I actually base my, my, my trust that there will be a future for this baby girl that was born at 6.30 this morning, for my youngest granddaughter, who's 11 years old. And I figured she was born in 2000. So I can always know how old she is. It's a good year. Um, so I, I think to myself, so if at the next uh, millennium, she'll be... Uh, She'll be 100 years old, but people get to be 100 years old then. But what will the world be in 100 years, or 80 years, or 60 years? Uh, I really base my uh, hope for her and for everybody else's little girl or little boy on the fact that people are fundamentally not only strung, wired to be kind, wired for compassion, but if someone would t remind them of that, they would do it. I think the ultimate text would be, hey, you know, let's all be kind. Find three people to be nice to right this minute. Pass it on. You know, we could have, imagine what we could do in the world. So I'm happy about all this texting. <laughs> Even in the middle of dinners. <laughs> I have to just text the right message. <laughs> Marty, what? Everything that you've said today resonates with the movie I Am, which I went and saw last night. I did too. <laughs> now, I was going to say, whether you did or didn't, yeah. everything that you said, just it was all about this. Right. All about how acquiring and having lots, if you don't share it and give it away, you're yeah. not any happier the more right. you have. Right. It's not like if you have one dollar... You're this happy, and if you have a hundred dollars, you're more happy. Or yeah. Millions of yeah. dollars. It's when you share it and give it and recognize the connection. Yeah. It, it was so. Anybody who hasn't seen it, I think who went since last week? We had it as a homework last week. Yeah. <laughs> so who went? Yeah. yeah what, what, what was the moment you like? You know what? What line stayed with me? One. I was thinking about this morning getting dressed. One percent of the atmosphere that we breathe is argon. Yeah. Argon is an inert gas. It never changes. It doesn't disintegrate, and it doesn't bond with anything. 
so that 1% of every breath of air that you take is argon, and it's the same argon that has forever and ever been circulating in this atmosphere. It's not like oxygen gets changed into this and then it gets changed into carbon dioxide, it goes to oxygen, goes to water, it goes to this, goes to that. It's the very same argon that's been here forever and ever. So the same argon that Mozart breathed and Beethoven breathed and Wagner breathed and Cleopatra and, and the pharaohs, we're breathing, all that's, we're passing around the argon. And it went into them and it animated them, or their breath animated them as our breath animates us. And that really, truly, we are connected with every breath to every living thing. It was very thrilling. So, so I have two things to say to you. First of all, thank you very much for coming today. Uh, I really all of a sudden feel, oh, I won't be here till mid-June. So, uh, so you will be here, I hope, because... Uh, Donald will be here mostly. I think uh, Tony Bernhard will be here next week. Wonderful people will be here. And if you want to come on Sunday, I am teaching all day Sunday up in that big, uh, in our major uh, big meditation hall. If you've never been up there, mostly we can't have day-longs up there because there are retreats happening. And this 60-day retreat is ending. So I get to teach there all day Sunday. I'm going to teach a day called the whole of the path, what the Buddha taught. And we're going to teach from the, we're going to use as a text, the Metta Sutta, which we'll distribute and we'll talk about it from morning till night. So if you want to have a, a Sunday together, you can, it's a big room. It's got a lot of people coming, but come, it's nice to fill it up with people and it's a lovely opportunity to sit in the room. So I wish you a very good spring and a very good renewal and a very happy Easter and a very good Passover and everything else, and uh, I'll see you just about at, uh, I'll see you on June 16th. So it'll be just up to the summer solstice, unless I see you on Sunday. Thank you. Quick announcement, quick announcement, you who?